Good evening and welcome to all who are joining us here this evening from across the globe. Tonight's class is graciously dedicated by David and Ida Schattenstein in the sacred memory of the Kedoshim of Mumbai, India, Rabbi Gavriel Noyach and his wife Rifki Holtzberg and the other Kedoshim who were barbarically murdered one year ago in the Chabad house of Mumbai and their first yard site, the first day of Kislev, was commemorated last week. The Schattensteins also dedicate this evening's class to the loving memory of a young soul, Alta Shula Swerdlov, the daughter of Rabbi Yossi and Hindel Swerdlov, whose Shloishim, the 30th day since her passing, was commemorated last week. When love is not about the lover is the theme of tonight's class. We are going to explore three stories, three episodes. At the surface, there is something strange in each one of them. And then we will go beyond the superficial layers and try to see a deeper message being conveyed in all of these three episodes. Episode number one, both in the beginning of the portion of Ayetze and in the end of the portion of Ayetze, Yaakov Avinu, Jacob our father, encounters the divine. He encounters God's angels. In the beginning of Ayetze, we read, and I'm going to request from you to please open up your curriculums right below the video to source number one. Yaakov, the Torah tells us, leaves his hometown of Be'er Shava in the land of Israel. Vayele Charona, and he travels to the city of Charon in Mesopotamia. Vayivga Bamakim. He encounters a place, a special holy place. Vayolansham, and he goes to sleep in that place which he encounters. He has a dream. We read further on. Vayachlaim, he dreams. Vihine sulam mutsav There is a ladder standing on the earth. Its peak reaches heaven. Vihine malachi alakim oilim the angels of God are going up, they're ascending on the ladder, and they are descending on the ladder. This is the beginning of the Porsche. Intriguingly, at the end of Ayetze, after 20 years of living in Mesopotamia, marrying, building a large family, Yaakov is now on his way home, back to the Holy Land. Open up source number two, the last verses of Ayetzeh. Yaakov went on his way and angels of God encountered him. And when Yaakov saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. And he calls the name of the place Machanoyim. So you see, the portion of Ayetze is bracketed with Yaakov's encounter 
with angels, God's angels. But there are two subtle but very significant differences between the encounter in the opening of Ayetzeh and in the encounter at the conclusion of Ayetzeh. And both of these differences are pointed out in the Zohar, in the foundational Kabbalistic text called the Zohar, in this week's parsha of Ayetzeh, page 165a in the Zohar, Kuf And the Zohar says, look at the difference. In the beginning of Ayetzeh, Jacob encounters the holy place. Vayivga bamakayim. He finds the place of holiness. At the end of Vayetzeh, we have the same word, Vayivga. Vayivga we have in the beginning and we have at the end. But in the beginning, he encounters the holy place. At the end, Vayivgu boi elikim. God's angels encounter him. One more difference. In the opening of Vayetzeh, he encounters the angels in a dream. Vayachalim, he dreams. And in his dream, he sees angels ascending and descending upon the ladder. At the conclusion of Ayetzeh, he does not encounter these angels in a dream. Vayivgu, boy, they meet him in reality. Vayoymer Yaakov kasherom, when Yaakov sees them, he says, this is the camp of God. Why is the Torah emphasizing that he said this after he saw them? Obviously, he said this only after he saw them. Subtly, the Torah is telling us, this time he actually saw them. In real life, not only in a dream. The Torah makes these distinctions, these subtle distinctions, by using the same word, Vayivga. Vayivga in the beginning, Vayivgu at the end. But when we look into the text, we see these two differences. Why? What is the meaning in them? What is the significance in them? Let's hold on to this for a few moments. And we'll get back to it at the conclusion of the class. Now I would like to shift our focus to another dramatic story in Vayetzeh. Yaakov, of course, comes to Charon. At the well, he encounters a beautiful young woman whom he cherishes deeply. Her name is Rachel, Rachel. He wants to marry her. And her father, Lavan Laban, tells Yaakov, you may marry her for seven years of labor. And Yaakov accepts the deal. Source number three in your curriculum, in the PDF right below the video. The Torah says, Jacob worked for Rachel, for Rachel, seven years. But these seven years were in his eyes like a few days because of his love towards her so the seven years pass in his eyes like a few days the medrash in source number four elaborates on the meaning of this statement of this observation source number four in your source sheet in your curriculum right below the video the psikta zutras actually in shmois compares two verses and contrasts them the Torah describes the Jewish exile in Egypt and tells us how the many days passed and the Jews groaned 
from the hard labor, and they screamed out, When days pass in melancholy, and pain and agony, the days are called many. But when many days pass with joy and gladness, then the days are called very few. Seeing by Yaakov that seven years were considered in his mind just a few days. So there's two types of labor. There is the labor of the Jewish people in Egypt. They're also working. But those days of work are considered many because they despise the time. They loathe the time. But when days are passing in joy and gladness, then many years can be seen as a few days. Now, this medrash and the statement in the verse in Vayetze at surface, at first glance, requires explanation. Yaakov Avinu, during these seven years, was waiting to marry Rachel. I can understand when one is in the midst of a joyous experience, so it's a true observation, that if you're really enjoying an experience, many years can fly by, like a few days. Right, you know the old anecdote about the Jew who says, I need Albert Einstein to teach me about relativity. He says, I know it for my own marriage. He says, I'm married for 30 years. My friend is also married for 30 years. My friend has a beautiful marriage. So the 30 years went by by him like a month. He says, I have a miserable marriage. The 30 years is like 30 million years. There's the old Yiddish anecdote about a Jew who walks into an institution for the mentally challenged. And there's an elderly man sitting in the institution and screaming, Rochel, 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 all day screaming Rochel. So the visitor asks the doctor, he says, Was Rochel all day? He says, listen, since this man came in here 45 years ago, this is what he screams all day, Rochel, Rochel, Rochel. He says, why? What happened? He says, he was in love with this girl named Ruchel. And she dumped him. And as a result of that, he went insane. He lost his mind. He came in here, and since then, he doesn't stop screaming, Ruchel, Ruchel, Ruchel. Okay. He goes into another room, and guess what? There's another Jew screaming, Ruchel, Ruchel, Ruchel. So he asked the doctor, he says, what's with this one? He says, This is the guy who actually got married to her. So when you're dealing in the actual experience, so everyone understands if it's a painful experience, a short time seems like a long time. If it's a happy and fun and exciting experience, a long time seems like a short time. It passes so easily and so smoothly. But this doesn't explain the Pasuk here because here Yaakov is not married to Rachel. Yaakov is waiting to get married to her. He's anticipating the great day. He's eagerly yearning and pining for the greatest experience in his life. If that's the case we know in our life, if you know that something is going to happen in a few years from now, and every day you're waiting for it, so then an hour seems like a day, and a day becomes a month, 
And a month becomes a year. And a year becomes seven years. It's not seven years or like a few days. When Yaakov is eagerly anticipating, waiting for the day when he can actually fulfill his dream and unite in love with Rachel. Now you may say, the answer is very simple. True, he was waiting to get married, but during these seven days, he was enjoying himself. You know, they say that a chassan and a kala, a groom and a bride, it's a very innocent and pure and precious and exciting time. He gets to enjoy his bride, she gets to enjoy her groom, she gets to enjoy her groom. He doesn't have to work, he doesn't have to make a living, she's still living in her father's home. There's no major pressure, it's still fresh and new and interesting. But that wasn't the case in this situation. Yaakov was not sitting around enjoying his conversations or time with Rachel, going out to a restaurant or going out for a nice walk with his kala. That was not the case. And how do I know it wasn't the case? Because Yaakov tells his father-in-law in Parshas Vayetzah, he tells him what he was doing those seven years while he was waiting for Rachel. So we have a clear description of the diary of Yaakov Avinu during those seven years. Open up your sources to number five. The curriculum under the video to number five. What does Yaakov Avinu tell Lavan at the end of 20 years of working for him when he wants to ready, wants to go back and he leaves his home and Lavan pursues him and Yaakov gets angry at him, at him and says, what is my crime? It's been 20 years that I'm with you and your sheep and goats have not miscarried. And the rams of your flock I have not eaten. I never brought you an animal that was attacked. I bear the loss. You would demand the loss from me, whether it was stolen by day or stolen by night. During the day, the scorching heat consumed me. During the night, the frost penetrated me, and sleep was snatched from my eyes. It's been 20 years that I'm in your home. I have worked for 14 years to be able to marry both of your daughters. And another six years with your flock. And you switched my wage Ten times or a hundred times. This is what Yaakov was doing for seven years. They weren't years of physical comfort and prosperity, serenity and relaxation. Yaakov wasn't sitting in a hammock with Rachel, drinking pina colada and eating sushi and having great conversation. Yaakov was working physically very hard, by day and by night, not sleeping. By day with the scorching heat, by night with the terrible frost. And yet the Torah says, as he's working, separated physically from Rachel, not married to her, waiting, the seven years fly by like a few days. How do we understand this? I would say it's natural that the Torah would say that the seven years passed like eternity, rather than like Yom Machadim. Let us now draw insights from another story. Another story about a groom and a bride. The bride's name was Rachel. Just as in this story, 
the groom was a shepherd, and the groom was a shepherd for the flock of his future father-in-law. Just as in this story, the groom was an impoverished shepherd. Just as in this story, the father-in-law and the groom had a very complicated relationship. Just as in this story, the father-in-law alienated his daughter economically. And just as in this story, there was a tremendous love in the relationship and tremendous sacrifice. And I'm referring here, of course, to the relationship between a young woman named Rachel and her husband, whose name is very similar, whose name was very similar to Yaakov. His name was Akiva. Akiva, of course, has in its name the letters Yaakov with an additional Aleph or Hey, depends how you spell Akiva. And this is the great story about the marriage between Rachel and her husband Akiva. It's a story our rabbis relate in Gemara Mesech Tiksuvis, Tractiksuvis, Dav Samach Beis, Ahmed Beis. Briefly, and what is relevant to our discussion, Akiva was a shepherd, an impoverished shepherd, a poverty-stricken individual, totally, completely non-learned and ignoramus. And he shepherded the flock of a very wealthy Jew whose name was Kalba Savur. And he had a daughter, Rachel, who noticed the modesty of this shepherd and offered her hand in marriage. But the condition was he would go study, he would go learn. Akiva agrees, and Akiva and Rachel get married. But when her father, Kalba, hears about the type of person she married, he excommunicates her. He expels her from her home and he makes a vow that he will never shear an iota of his possessions or property or assets with her for portraying him and the family so severely and marrying this seemingly simpleton, peasant, ignoramus. Rabbi Akiva goes to study. Twelve years he goes to study. And when he comes home to meet his wife, he hears a conversation, an elderly man is defining his wife as a living widow, a widow whose husband is alive. And what is her response? What is Rachel's response? Take a look at source number six. Rachel, Akiva's wife, tells this old man, If my husband would listen to me, if he would obey me, Yosef today he would go study Torah for another 12 years. Omar, Rabbi Akiva says, Rabbi Akiva returned home, overheard this conversation, he says, This is with permission. This is what she really wants. He goes and he learns another 12 years in the yeshiva. Ki when he finally comes home, the Talmud says he brings back 24,000 students. When Rabbi Akiva arrives to his wife Rachel, she falls on her face. She kisses Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva's servant wants to push her away. He doesn't understand. How does she have the audacity to behave this way towards Rabbi Akiva? Rabbi Akiva tells the students, Shafkua, leave her alone. And in his inimitable words, Shali v'shalachem, shalahu.
what I have and what you have all belongs to her. And then the Gemara tells the story how Rabbi Akiva absolved and nullified the vow and the promise that his father-in-law made and the relationship between the son-in-law and the father-in-law, the daughter and the father was rehabilitated. But here is our question. Why did Rabbi Akiva go into his house? Rabbi Akiva went to study for 12 years. This is what his wife wanted. This was his condition. She cherished Torah. She understood the potential of her husband. And she understood what her husband would mean for the Jewish world and for Jewish history. The fact remains, as the Gemara says, Kulu Rabbi Akiva, the tradition of Torah that we have today all comes from Rabbi Akiva, who living in the generation following the destruction of the Second Temple, almost single-handedly ensured that the Torah would not be obliterated from the Jewish world as the Romans wanted, and ultimately became a martyr executed by the Romans because of his position. And the entire body of the oral Torah tradition that we have today was channeled through Rabbi Akiva and the disciples and the students that he created. And his wife was the one who recognized this in him. And her love to Torah, her endless love to Torah, inspired her to ask of her husband one thing, go study. And I want you to go study for another 12 years. Granted. But what about the natural yearning of Rabbi Akiva towards his wife? How is it that when he comes home, he goes right back to study when he hears that this is what she wants? He doesn't go in, say hello, drink a cup of tea, stay for a week, two weeks, a month, relax, enjoy each other, then go learn. No, Rabbi Akiva goes right back to study. Now it's not like Rabbi Akiva did not understand the value of a relationship when the Gemara in Mesech Shabbos asks what does it mean to be wealthy? It's a big question today. What does it mean that you're a wealthy man? You know the Gemara source number 7 in your curriculum, Zagdi Gemara Shabbos, Davchafeya Medbez, Toner Abbanan, Ezo, Asher. What is a wealthy man? I would say a wealthy man is somebody who has a lot of money. His name is in Forbes. No! Reb Meir says somebody who knows how to enjoy his wealth. There's people who have money, but they don't know how to enjoy their money. They're more self-conscious, they're more insecure, they're more mishuga, <laughs> they're more envious, they're, they're more restless, they have not a day of peace. They're not normal. He knows how to enjoy his wealth. Definition of wealth, he has to have at least a hundred vineyards, a hundred fields, and a hundred servants who work, employees who work there. Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva says, no. It has nothing to do with what you own. What's a wealthy man? Somebody who has the privilege of being married to a wife whose deeds are Gracious and beautiful. That's Rabbi Akiva's definition of wealth. It's obvious Rabbi Akiva knew this from experience. And yet after 12 years, he doesn't go into his house. He goes right back to study. I'm not asking why he listened to his wife. His wife said, if he listens to me, I want him to go study another 12 years. Your wife says, you go listen. That's not a question. But why didn't he stop in? There's a classic Litvish word on this from Rabbi. I think it's from Reb Chaim Shmulevich, 
the, the Rosh Hashiva of Mir in Yerushalayim. The Mir in Yerushalayim, Reb Chaim says that here you see the difference between learning 24 years without interruption and learning 24 years with interruption. That would make the difference between one man and Rabbi Akiva. A person could go learn and learn and learn and learn, but the interruption, I have to relax a little bit. I have to stop my learning to relax. That makes all the difference. But this evening we want to offer another perspective. It may be hard for us, especially in the modern age and in our contemporary climate of how we view romance, love, relationships, kindness, marriage. It may be difficult for us to appreciate, but an important topic nonetheless. There are two types of love. There is a love that is about the lover. And there is a love that is completely not about the lover. It is actually about the beloved one. You see, sometimes you love somebody very strongly. You're with them. You enjoy them. You appreciate them. You suck the marrow out of every moment you're spending with them. You're exhilarated by the experience because a relationship with this person whom you cherish and whom, towards whom you have affection simply brings you fulfillment, happiness, inspiration, and gladness of the heart. As much as this love is authentic and real because you really cherish this person, it's about you, it's about the person who loves. You are gaining tremendously, you are growing tremendously, you're living it up. You are enjoying every moment and every encounter and every experience with this person whom you love so much. Also a rare commodity Powerful, potent, and real, but it's about the lover. Then there's another then there's another scenario. The lover may actually not be in close proximity to the one who is beloved. The one who loves may actually be in a distant location, in a remote location, devoid of the ability and the nachas, the appreciation and the enjoyment coming from the fact that you're in close proximity with a person to whom you have so many positive feelings. But the reason the one who loves is remote, is far away, is because they are actually fulfilling a request, a desire, a passion of the one they love so much. So they may physically and geographically be very remote, but psychologically and emotionally, they may actually be closer than in the first instance. Because in the first instance, I'm right near you and I'm enjoying you, but it's about my enjoyment. In the second instance, I may be far from you and I, therefore I don't have that enjoyment of being near the person whom I love. But the reason I am there is because this is what that person wants. So I'm ready to forgo my own passion and ecstasy because I realize it's not about me. And since I really love you and this is what you truly want, so therefore I go far away from you to fulfill what your desire is and to fulfill what you want knowing every single moment 
that as a result of this, I am truly transcending myself and connecting with the passion and the heart and the desire of the person I really love. Fascinatingly, this distinction, as abstract as it may seem, and of course it doesn't always play itself out in such stark ways, because usually people that love each other and unite in a marriage ought to be near each other and build a life together and live in one home, God willing, and build a family together for many long and happy years. But sometimes the contrast comes out in very stark ways. But the point is that even when they're in one place together, there are two different types of love. There is a love in which the primary emphasis is on the lover and him enjoying the one whom he loves or she enjoying the one who she loves. And then there is love where the primary emphasis is not about the one who loves, but it's rather the commitment and the complete dedication to the one who is beloved. In Jewish law and halacha, in a fascinating scenario, we have this distinction. There are two concepts in halacha. There's someone called a sachir and a shliach. The difference is a sachir means an employee. A shliach means a messenger, an ambassador, an emissary. A sachir, an employee, works in the office of the employer usually in close proximity to his employer, or if not in the actual office or workplace of the employer, he may be in charge on a piece of, on a piece of land that belongs to the employer. He may be managing another office of his employer, or a piece of real estate, or a piece of land, or a field, or working with the possessions of the employer, that is what an employee does. He works for the employer in his property and with his possessions, managing them or doing something else, whatever his job is. So he's working either near the employer or with his own possessions. That's a sachir. A shliach, an emissary, is the term we use in Jewish law and halacha when the mishaleach, when the one who sends him, designates him to fulfill a particular mission outside of his own territory. Because in his own office he doesn't need a shliach. A shliach is somebody you send to a far location where you yourself can't go and often to do something disconnected to your own land or to your own office or to your own home or field or piece of real estate or asset or business or company. It's a job you need him to do in another place, in another area, outside of the domain and the possessions of the one who sends them. That is technically the difference between these two terms. But there's another difference. When it comes to a shliach, the Talmud famously says, Shluchai shall Adam kamaisa. The emissary that you send out is like the one who sends him. He completely represents and embodies the one who sent him. The shliach is like the mashaleach. This is the famous Lekach Tov, Rabbi Yosef Engel, one of the great rabbis in the 1800s, wrote a book called Lekach Tov. And in the first section, he has three explanations of how closely connected does Jewish law see the shliach, the emissary, to the one who sent him. But whichever way you want to explain that closeness, the bottom line is shluchoy shaladam kamaisa. When the emissary does something, it's as though. The man who sent him has done it. He can betroth a woman 
as his shliach, as his emissary, as his agent, and many other areas where shlichus works. When it comes to a sacher, an employee, the situation is much different. Yeah, and Baba Metziah Daf Yudreb Nachman says, Yad Poyl Kiyad Balabayas. The hand of the employee is like the hand of the employer. But there's the big question, Rabbi Akiva Eger debates if it's Lahalacha, if that's the law. And in the commentaries there in Baba Metziah, there is a long discussion that it's still not the same like Shlichus. The employee is not considered to embody and represent the employer. He works for the employer. But what he does is his own thing. He's working for him. He's getting paid by him. But his act, we do not attribute as an act of the employer. It's an act of the employee. Versus the act of the shliach, of the emissary. We attribute that act, not to the shliach, not to the emissary, but to the one who sent him. Why the distinction? The answer is simple but deep. The employee gets paid. The reason the employee works for the employer is because he needs money. He needs to support himself and his family. So he's in it for himself. He's working for the employer, but he's working for himself. For his own benefit, for his own financial security and success. The shliach, the emissary, usually the term of a shliach is not somebody who regularly works for the owner. It's somebody whom the, who the Meshaleach, the one who sends out the emissary, designates him to go do a particular job for him. So when the Shliach goes out to do the job, who is he doing it for? He's not doing it for himself to get paid. He's doing it in normal Allahic circumstances. He's doing it for the one who sent him out. That's the difference. The employee may be in the same room like the employer. He may be looking at him 12 hours a day, or 10 hours a day, or 8 hours a day. But he's working for himself. So when he does something, the act is attributed to him. The shliach may be thousands of miles away from the one who sent him. And yet, he actually represents the one who sent him to the extent that his act is considered an extended arm. His arm is an extended arm of the one who sent him. Halachically, it's like the one who sent him actually did it. Why? He's so far away, he's not near him. Because the reason he's there is not for himself. The reason he's there is for the, to fulfill the mission, to fulfill the shlichus, to fulfill the role of the one who sent him. Not for his own benefit. And therefore, it's not about him. His actions represent the one who sent him, and therefore his acts are attributed to the one who sent him. Shluchay shal adam kemoyseh. Rabbi Akiva could have entered into the house and enjoyed the relationship and had a drink and relaxed and had a nice shmuas. And then he would have fulfilled his passion, his yearning, his craving to be with somebody he cherished so much. But Rabbi Akiva's love was far deeper. Rabbi Akiva knew that what does Rachel want? Rachel wants him to be learning. Rachel wants him to dedicate 12 years to Torah. Rachel wants him to guarantee the eternity of the Jewish tradition, the Jewish faith, and the Jewish people. That's what Rachel wants. So Rabbi Akiva transcended 
his own passion, his own yearning to be in the close proximity of someone he loves. And he became, in halachic terms, a shliach. Somebody who may go far away from the one who sent him, from the wife who sent him. But in being far away, he's actually much closer to her than when he is close. Because sometimes you may be close to somebody physically, but essentially you are another person. You're a separate person. And the reason you're close is for your own benefit. You're enjoying her. There's a deeper level of a relationship where I am committed to transcend myself and become really one with you. And what do you want? You want me to be far away fulfilling a shlichus, fulfilling a mission, giving Torah back to the Jewish people after one of the worst calamities in Jewish history. That moment Rabbi Akiva completely transcends himself, and he's completely one with his wife in an act of absolute self-transcendence beyond my own passion. For my own passion! Of course I want to be with you. But that's about me. That's about my feeling, my happiness. Where am I really going out of myself and connecting to you when I am in the place where you want and I represent you, I become one with your will and your desire and your mission. I'm not a sachi, I'm not an employee, I'm a shliach. This is the explanation in the story of Yaakov and Rachel as well. There are other explanations, but this is one of them. The Torah says, Yaakov Avinu worked seven years for Rachel, and they passed like a few days because he loved her. Those two words in source number three are the key. Because he loved her. He didn't love himself. If he would have loved himself, those seven years would have been perceived like 27 years. Every day, the yearning, the pining, the anticipation, the craving, when will I already be able to fulfill my dream and enter into a marital covenant with Rachel, the seven years would have taken much longer in his imagination. But Bahavasai Oisa, Yaakov Avinu didn't love himself. He didn't even love the fact that he got to love her, which is also a form of self-love. I love myself so much and therefore I enjoy you so much because what I get from you is enormous. When you're sitting and you're spending time with somebody you love and you cherish, you enjoy it tremendously. It gives you a sense of, of fulfillment and passion and enjoyment that is, a strip that is great. It's, it's, it's gewaldic. It's stupendous. Yaakov loved her. And therefore the focus shifted. Not on his desire to be with her, but actually on Rachel's benefit. And here's the key. When Yaakov worked seven years for Rachel, he wasn't only working for Rachel. He also worked in lieu of Rachel. Remember that when Yaakov came to the well, who came to, with the sheep? 
Vihine Rachel boy, Matsai Rachel came with the flock. Who was the shepherd before Yaakov? It was Rachel. So when Yaakov is now working seven years, he substituted for Rachel. These seven years, in which he describes to love on later. During the day I was consumed by scorching heat. By night I was consumed by frostbite. I did not sleep. Every moment that passed, Yaakov rejoiced over the fact that he can do it instead of Rachel, and Rachel could relax, and Rachel could sleep, and Rachel can enjoy her life, and Rachel doesn't have to engage in such excru- excruciatingly hard labor. And therefore, every moment that he could work instead of Rachel and represent Rachel in the labor, and she got to be able to pursue interests that perhaps were closer to her heart, and she didn't have to engage in such hard labor, every such moment for him was a delightful, exhilarating, and joyous experience. If he would focus on himself and his passion for Rachel, it would have been painful. But he was focusing on Rachel, on her needs what she wants and his opportunity to be there for her in the deepest way because she didn't have to work all this time she can enjoy her life and perhaps get a youth that she didn't have before this for Yaakov was a joyous experience and when you're enjoying yourself deeply then the Medrash says seven years fly by like a few days this is true with Yaakov and Rachel it's true with Rachel and Rabbi Akiva, or Rabbi Akiva and Rachel. And it's also true in everybody's life. Sometimes people love somebody else, they cherish somebody else, but the focus is always on them. The focus is always on their needs. I love you because of what you give to me. But the love must mean something else. Love also means that it's not always about you. That actually you could forgo your own pleasure and even if it's causing you pain, but the fact that somebody else that you love has now the ability to be able to fulfill their passion. That should make you excited. That should make you happy. You sometimes see spouses, it's hard for them to really appreciate and enjoy the fact that their spouse is relaxing. That their spouse is not working so hard. That their spouse has a day off. That their spouse doesn't have to work. Why? I am here working so hard. And why do you have the chutzpah to be home and do this and do relax and enjoy yourself? And they get jealous and they get worked up. Why? Why is it always about you? Appreciate. Celebrate it. Celebrate the other person's success. Celebrate the other person's tranquility. I'm not talking about an abusive, manipulative situation. We're talking in a functional relationship. Celebrate another person's happiness. Go out of yourself. Transcend yourself. It's also true in the relationship between the Jew and God. In the relation between the Jew and Hashem, there are two modes. There's Rabbi Akiva in his home, and there's Rabbi Akiva away from his home. There's Yaakov Avinu in Be'er Sheva, and there's Yaakov Avinu in exile. Vayetzi Yaakov me Be'er Sheva, vayelech haronah, this was a paradigm for exile. 
or the Rechayim, it's a paradigm for the soul descending into a physical body, leaving its father's bosom in heaven. Or in many Hasidic works, it's the paradigm for the Jew leaving the cocoon of sacred spirituality and holiness. Yaakov Avinu in Eretz Yisrael is Ishtam Yoshevahalim, a wholesome man standing in the tents learning Torah. And then he goes out to a nasty world, a nasty environment dealing with a deceitful father-in-law to raise a family and to work very hard. And to elevate the sparks and to bring goodness and godliness and to charon chayroi nafshaloylam. The spiritual anger of the world, as the Madrash says on the word charon, means anger. And in that nasty place of wrath, Jacob reveals goodness and holiness and builds up the Jewish family, the Shvatim, the Beis Yisrael. When the Jew is in a place of holiness, when the Jew is in a Beis Hamikdash in a holy temple, he's a Sachir. He's God's employee. He's in the close proximity of God. He's in God's office. He's in God's domain. He's in God's territory. He enjoys it. He works for Hashem. He loves it. But ultimately, he does it for himself. He becomes a Muslim. He becomes complete. He becomes elevated. He becomes inspired. He grows from one level to another level, to a higher level, until he feels, ah, I have reached such great madregas, such great levels. Then there is the time that the Jew is sent out far away from the territory of his employer. The Jew graduates. He's not a sochir. She's not a sochir. He or she is a shliach. You're sent far away from the domain of a revealed God. You're not in the base Hamikdash. You're not in Eretz Yisrael. You're not in Be'er Shava. Vayelecharona. You may go into an environment where there's an emptiness. You don't see godliness. You don't see holiness. There's no Yiddishkeit. There's no Torah. There's not even olive base. And this may not only be remote geographically, it may be yourself, sometimes your own body, your own animalistic soul, is a place which composes tremendous obstacles. You don't see a glimmer of godliness or holiness. And the Jew asks, why? And the answer is, now you're a shliach. Now it's actually not about you. You're not in the proximity of a revealed God where you enjoy it. But now you're representing Hashem. The reason why you went out is because God sent down every soul to this world. In the famous words of the Medrash, God wanted that we should transform a physical, egocentric, materialistic numb world into an abode of the divine. So when you go out of a cocoon of holiness into a very mundane universe and you transform it, here it's not for yourself. For yourself, you would be much more excited if you're in his vicinity, if you're in a spiritual place. Here you're doing it for him and therefore, here you become one with the divine. Here you represent him. It's not about you. The further you are, the actually closer you are. Because you're so far. There's no pleasure for you, but it's His pleasure. And you come to become, and you identify yourself with that pleasure so deeply that now the shliach, only the shliach, the agent, the emissary, halachically in Jewish law is considered 
the person who actually embodies in his very life and in his very act, or in her very life and her very acts, the one who sent them. In the Holy Land, in Be'ersheva, Yaakov is a sochir, he's an employee, an employee of God, an employee of holiness. In Charon and Mesopotamia, he becomes a shliach. It's a different category. It's a different definition. Now, we'll be able to appreciate and understand the distinction between the beginning of Ayetze and the end. In both, Yaakov has an encounter with the divine. But the difference is drastic. You see, when Jacob left his home, he was single. He was unencumbered. He was wholesome. He dedicated his life to grow in spirituality and holiness, to become a beacon of light like his father Yitzchak, like his grandfather Avram. He was more or less, not completely stress-free, few worldly obligations, living in a transcendental oasis of his mother's and father's spirituality. When Yaakov returns home, back after 20 years, he's married with 11 sons and a daughter. 20 years he spent in a foreign country living under the shadow of an infamous deceitful father-in-law. Yaakov raised his children there and worked day and night to support them. We see how Yaakov Avinu describes these 20 years to love him. When he tells them, 20 years consumed by heat and frost. 20 years you didn't lose one animal. 20 years I beard every loss and I did not stop working. 20 years of a very difficult and stressful life and you kept on changing my wage. We would expect that after these 20 challenging years, Yaakov's ability for divine perception would be far inferior to the good old days when he was back at home in the Holy Land in a sacred environment. Yet the message here in Vayetze is the exact opposite. When Yaakov was leaving the land of Eretz Yisrael, he searches and encounters the holy place. He meets God's angels in a dream. On the way back, the angels encounter him. And this time it's not in a dream. This time it's reality. When you are spiritually self-contained, when you are an employee of God, you search for God, you search for truth, you search for depth, and you find God in your dreams. When you go out of your own shell, when you dedicate yourself to build a family and to transform a cold and nasty world around you, when you transcend your own ego, your own needs, even your own spiritual needs, and you dedicate yourself to the mission of a soul, to take a world and turn it into a world saturated with Torah and godliness, to build a family beyond yourself, to give to people outside of yourself. Now, God searches for you. You don't search for Him. He searches for you. And you don't experience Him in a dream. You experience Him in a reality. In the beginning of Ayetze, Yaakov is spiritual. He searches for God. He searches for holiness. He pursues meaning. And he finds it in a dream. In an abstract, nebulous dream.
when he goes through the 20 years. For Yaakov Halachadarki is on his way back. Now meaning pursues him. Now God pursues him. Now it's a reality. Now he's not an employee of Hashem. Now he's a shliach shluchay Now he became one with the divine because it was not about him. He transcended himself to represent the will of Hashem. And this is true in every Jewish life because when you find yourself engulfed by the pressures and challenges of your own self and your own environment, you're compelled to put up a battle for your faith, for your dignity, for your integrity. And you realize that your mission is to have an effect on your environment, to turn a Choron into an Eretz Yisrael. It's that moment when you can experience the truth of godliness in an extraordinary, authentic and genuine way, something not possible when you are in a cocoon of holiness as an employee. Now, you're finally not a sachir, an employee, but you are a shliach. Have a wonderful night.